And our question, as it has been for the past couple of weeks, is why do we study Torah? And we have already discussed this um, from many different angles. And tonight, I think, is another very, very important uh, cup angle, maybe a few angles that we'll uh, address it at. Uh, and I want to start with an observation. I think it's a fair observation, and it's one that perhaps we could live our whole lives and never make. Uh, but once it's pointed out, it's something that does indeed uh, you know, demonstrate something intriguing about the world that the Almighty uh, created for us. Um, so we live, we exist, um, we're alive, right? Until we're dead, we're alive, ostensibly, right? right. But we need sustenance. So we need to eat. Like we have to like consume, yeah. like with our mouth, body and digest something that comes out of the ground. Which all food comes from the ground, even if you eat an animal. The animals from the ground, right? Yeah. We're all from the ground. We're all like existing within this miracle that is vegetation. You know, it's it's a miracle because you're taking a seed and you're throwing it into the ground and it disappears. And it starts rotting. And the seed is inedible. The soil in which it's contained is also inedible. And if I dropped an alien onto planet Earth and I said, what's going to be here? They would say nothing. It's going to rot in perpetuity. But a miracle happens. That out of the rot comes something new. Some rebirth. And we have vegetation and consumable food that came out of nowhere. And we say the blessing, of course, Hamotzi lechem in Aretz, that the Almighty takes food out of the ground with bread out of the ground. And you might ask the question, wait a minute, we don't get bread out of the ground, we get wheat out of the ground, and we turn the wheat into bread, yes, but there's sustenance that comes almost out of nowhere, and it's just a gift that the Almighty gives us, and we need that to live. So we're not really living, you know, on this kind of, horizontal plane that we're alive till we're dead we're dependent and then we get food we get like a new research uh, uh, a resurgency of, of energy and we can continue living we need, we need to eat we need to drink and bizarrely we need to sleep you know if, of course that's we've slept every day of our own, maybe most days of our lives for doctors maybe they go 24, 60, 36 hours without sleeping but we all need to sleep it's not possible to live without sleeping right? And it's the Almighty's like telling us, okay, you're so mighty, you're human. You're going to have to stop, and you're going to be comatose, horizontally, totally at the mercy of anything that comes after you every single day. And it's just this bizarre reality that we're not even used to even analyzing. And we see this again and again. And, you know, if you want to break it down to a further, like, more molecular level, you'll know, the doctor would tell us, that even within your body... Your, everything is being discarded and recreated. All your cells that you have today are not the same cells you were born with, well, with the exception of your brain cells. We'll get to that in a second. But all your cells have been recycled out multiple times. If you take a human and examine him on a molecular level and you, uh, you make a note of every single cell and every single subatomic particle within him, and then you take that same human seven years later, it's an entire, it looks exactly the same, right? We age a little bit, got a few wrinkles, but you're the same. That's what you look like, right? 
but you're not. On a molecular level, you're entirely different. You're a different human, different body. Because every cell, with the exception of brain cells, has been filtered out and replaced with new ones. And that's just this ongoing, like we said, it's this ongoing sustenance of change and injection of nourishment that we need to live. And the question, of course, that we should ask, or we could ask, potentially, is, is why? Like, why, why can't we just be the same? Like, why, why do we need the food to exist? Why do we need the water to exist? Why do we need the sleep? Why, we, why do we need to be constantly recreating ourselves? Why can't we just be static? Just be ourselves? Why did the humanity create this dynamic? And it's an interesting, and like I said, it's, it's interesting, it's bizarre, but, and it's something we're so used to. You know, by the way, as a quick aside, the reason why your brain cells don't change is because if they did, you'd forget stuff. What happens when there is an impairment in brain function? God forbid if someone has a stroke or uh, someone has some sort of brain injury, they forget how to talk and forget how to, because that's the engine that drives everything, right? So you lose memories. Yeah, you forget your, you know, forget people, forget. It's really, really sad. I met someone recently. Um, we were in the passport line. I was in the passport line because I wanted to get my son a passport because I told my wife, I said, what happens if Mashiach comes and they rebuild the third temple and we have to go to Israel but there's no passport? That's what I said. She's like, really? (laughs) I said, bureaucracy. It's hard to work around. Either way, we're in the line waiting for the passport application office and there's a gentleman that's pulling up the line behind us and he starts talking and it's very hard to hear him and he tells me that he's had a stroke a couple of months ago and he's relearning how to speak. That's what happens when, uh, when there is a, an injury, an impingement on the brain. The vital functions that we need to live are affected. So if we, you know, if the Almighty created the world, created the human body in a way that the brain cells, like all the other cells, filtered out and were, uh, you know, were, were recycled for new ones, suddenly you wouldn't have any memories. And you have to reteach your brain everything, and that would be suboptimal. Uh, and it's just wonderful. One of, one of those wonderful things that the Almighty did for us just because He loves us and because He wants the world to, to function. Well, it should have been a little better for the elderly because they forget things all the time. Which is another good question. Why is there a gradual... And if you think about it this way, I'll, I'll turn the tables on you. What if people didn't get old and they just died in the middle of their vibrancy wouldn't that be ever more tragic? So I'm going to flip it around. I'm going to say that's one of the blessings that the Almighty gives us is that we don't just die suddenly. That's much more tragic than someone who's kind of had their peak and I'm starts receding. Or fifty-five. Well, I'm saying that well, that that's give you a break, you know? no, but that's <laughs> see that's a good question because. That's not, I mean, you're not referring to an isolated incident or an isolated phenomenon. It's common, and it's not only by elderly, it's by young people. Young people, God forbid, that are born with deformities or that suffer pain. And that's a good question. And, and people that are not born with that knowledge. True, or develop them. People get cancer, right? I mean, a lot of bad things happen, or what we perceive as bad things happen. And like the point that we're bringing up now, those two are supposed to be lessons. We live in a world, and not, this is very, I'm jumping to the answer here, but we live in a world where there's a function, there's a goal, there's purpose. And that purpose is 
manifested in the form of choices, of free will choices. Everything that we have, everything that transpires, every consequence, every circumstances of our lives is because the Almighty is creating an arena for decisions. Right? Something bad happens, you could go both ways with that. That's an opportunity for a decision. If you look at the Jewish response to tragedy, it invokes religion, which seems bizarre. And the answer is because even when something bad happens, there's a way to grow. Of course, there's a way to regress, but there's a way to grow as well. And that's why there's blessings associated with the most tragic and unfortunate things that happen in life because those two, tragically, but they, they are opportunities and challenges and tests for us. Will we grow? Will we exercise our capacity to give a positive spin on an unpositive uh, happen, happenstance? Uh, and back to our original premise, and that is that we live in a world where we are needy, our bodies are needy. That too is teaching us a lesson. And the lesson that it's teaching, perhaps, well, you could, you could go simply with this. Right? There's a simple and there's a more complex, nuanced answer. The simple is, well, okay, when we're needy, that presents opportunities for choice. When we have to eat all the time and drink all the time and sleep all the time, that creates opportunities for decisions. Right? We could do a mitzvah every time we, or we eat, or we could ignore God every time we eat. It's in our hands. Right? When you sleep, you could use it as a form of indulgence, a form of pleasure-seeking and ignoring a purpose in life, or you can use it as a way to refuel and re-energize to a, towards achieving your purpose and your destiny. But there's a little bit of a nuanced approach, which is what I wanted to get to uh, in the context of our discussion tonight. And that is, we have an existence, an iteration of ourselves, our body, that every aspect of its existence is in constant need of nourishment. You don't eat, you suffer. Your stomach groans. You don't eat longer, it starts to impair your functionality. You don't eat longer, and it impacts how you look. You don't eat longer, you can get really sick. And your body starts shutting down, right? That's what happens. Your body needs it. It needs it. Your, your organs won't function if it doesn't have the fuel. If you don't have the water, the same thing. You don't sleep, also. Question. Dumb question. No dumb um, questions. Oxygen, air. I, exactly. We, need, we have to breathe every day. But what does the Talmud say about that? It's not a dumb question at all. It's a very intelligent question. The Talmud says, every time we breathe, we thank God, or we should thank God. Right? The word nishama and nishima are similar because maybe they, they, you know, there, there is a correlation between breath and soul. Even a single breath could be an opportunity to thank God and to not take it for granted. And that we need all the time. And that's another great example. It's not just you need to eat every four or five hours. You need to breathe every four or five seconds, right? Yeah. And, yeah, and that's your point. Like you said, there's no, we, we are so dependent. Our body doesn't work. It doesn't continue. It doesn't have a true existence unless it's being nourished constantly. And a lesson perhaps we could draw from that is that our soul our forgotten other half, the iteration of ourself that exists beyond this world, that too functions the same way. There is a parallel, there's a mirror image 
between the physical and the spiritual. And this is, of course, one of the overarching themes of Judaism. But it's within our own existence. Our body and our soul are parallel. We have 365 sinews and 248 limbs, says the Talmud. Corresponding to that, we have 248 positive mitzvahs and 365 negative mitzvahs. Do you know why? Because we have a spiritual body, so to speak, that too is comprised of 248 plus 365, and the nourishment of each one of those spiritual organs is fulfilled by the mitzvahs. I don't know if I said that too quickly. Does that make sense? Like this, like we're so used to understanding mitzvahs as being, you know, what the people at the Hebrew school want us to know, or you know, what our grandparents did in Europe, right, or what the Jews have done throughout history. What mitzvahs really are is nourishment to our other existence. It's food for our soul. It's oxygen for our soul. It's water that we need to survive. To just continually exist. Just, you don't eat because your grandfather ate. No one said, hmm, my grandparents in Europe, they used to eat breakfast. We'll do breakfast as well. Do people do that? No, you eat because you need to eat. It's vital to your continued existence. But somehow, we don't realize that Torah and mitzvahs our breakfast, lunch, and supper, and oxygen and water, sustenance for our life. And the reason why this is a critical point, the reason why is because we don't have a sensory link with our soul. What happens if you take a day off of eating? Exactly. You have the almighty placed within us receptors, or I guess uh, an antennae, of, uh, we, we feel it, right? We're sense, in a sensory way, we're linked to our body and its agenda and its needs. What would, huh? Deprivation. Is that, and you don't have it, you feel it, right? When you, when you don't sleep, you're tired. When you don't drink, you're thirsty. What would happen, what would happen if we didn't feel hunger, didn't feel thirst, didn't feel the need to sleep? What would happen to us? We would die. We would die. So the Almighty in this world wants our body for sure to work. The question is if our soul will work. The big equation in our life is will we also pay attention to our soul just like we're wired to pay attention to our body. The agenda of our body, the needs of of our body, are almost always in the forefront of our mind because otherwise we feel the pain. We have the sensory link to our body and its pain and its agenda. But we only have the intellectual understanding of this, the needs of our soul and its agenda. So the big dilemma, the big equation, the big quandary, the big test of this world in the Torah's understanding of it is will we also pay attention to the soul and its needs? Or, unfortunately, like the person who doesn't feel the need of hunger, they could go days and days and days without eating. You know, they they, they could they could just you know. You, sometimes you see these uh, they have they have these stories about these gamers that pass out because they're really intensely into their game, 
and uh, they, they, their senses are so heightened in that part of their lives that they forget to drink. And they go 36 hours without drinking and they just collapse and they're in the, in, in, you know, in the hospital. That happens. Right? But most of us, you know, you're thirsty, you get something to drink, and, and you continue. But our soul, we don't feel it. Why? We're, what? Why? Ooh, okay, why? <laughs> yeah, because why? that's the dynamic. The dynamic in this world is body first, soul second. The whole idea of, by the way, next world, just if you want to describe it in one sentence, you're, oh, I'm a body, you heard that, you heard that, that, that term a hundred times, I'm sure. What's this next world? It's this, it's this body, soul, flipped around. Everything's the opposite. All you feel is soul, you don't feel body. Just like you can go 95 years on planet Earth, in this world, without ever noticing that you have a soul, without ever tending to its needs, without ever feeding its hunger, without ever tending to its sustenance, so too in the next world you could go 95 years or 9,500 million years without ever tending to your body or noticing it. Well, that, that's a technicality. You do have a body because the idea of, of body and soul coming back together. But it's, but, it, but well, okay, well, who says you don't have a body? Well, but, but remember, a human is body and soul. That's the marriage of, of the human. The ground, the soul well, okay, so Alam Abba is oh, post resurrection. Well, the only way to get to Alam Abba is via resurrection. But yes, it's body and soul married together again fused together again, but it can't be more different. Because while you do have a body, it's like theoretical. You don't really feel it. It doesn't actually play a part. It's the exact opposite of the way it is today. Okay, well, what does this have to do with Torah? So, uh, by the way, if we want to look at sources for this, there's uh, many, many examples of, of, of this in the Torah. For example, the Talmud says, Ein Mayim Torah. It says it several times in Baba Kama uh, 82, in uh, Ta'anit, I believe it's 7a. When it, whenever the Torah says the word Mayim, which means water, it's referring to Torah. The story of Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva is living under tremendous, well, him amongst the rest of the Jews, are living with tremendous persecution on the hands of the Romans. The Romans announce and declare, whoever teaches Torah publicly will get executed. Rabbi Akiva continues teaching Torah. A fellow by the name of Papas ben Yehuda. Papas ben Yehuda comes to Rabbi Akiva and says to him, Rabbi Akiva, what are you doing? Don't you know that they'll flay you? They'll kill you in a horrible, gruesome, torturous way? If you do this, go underground. Why are you teaching Torah publicly? And Rabbi Akiva responds to him with a very famous and enduring analogy, a parable. And he says there was once uh, a fox that's walking alongside the water. And the fox sees a fish inside the water. And the fish is darting and dodging. Right? And he adds, the fox asks the fish, what are you dodging? What are you, what are you so scared of? And he says to him, I'm scared of the nets. The fishermen, they all put nets inside the water. And then you get caught on the net... You're on someone's plate tomorrow night. I don't want to be in someone's plate. So the fox says to the fish, let me tell you what you do. Come on ground. There's no nets over here. You don't have anything to worry about. So the fish responds to the fox, you're the most clever of animals. Everyone knows the fox is allegedly the most clever. You're a fool. If in the place of my life, 
I'm in danger. How much more danger will I be in the place of my death? Says Rabbi Tiva, he says the Torah is life for the Jewish people. It's oxygen, like you said. The fish only has oxygen when it's in the water. Jews only have oxygen when they're submerged in Torah. You want to take us out? Yes, it's a dangerous, dangerous place. There's a lot of nets. It's dangerous. But at least here we have a fighting chance to, to continue to exist. It's dangerous, and it's it's unfortunate situation to be in. But here we have a shot. We have some opportunity. We go out of the Torah. We drop the Torah, abandon the Torah. We're dead meat. So that's the nourishment for the soul. Oh, yeah. Exactly. But, yeah, but why does it have to be publicly? Why couldn't it be underground? Well, I guess... If if uh, if the Torah is not taught publicly, if it's only done uh, individually, uh, then there's the risk of it being forgotten. Right. Uh, the reason, one of the reasons why the Torah was transmitted orally, was because that uh, demands public study. Public study ensures that things will be transmitted accurately. You know, if you go to university to become a doctor. And you say, oh, I don't need to go to the lecture hall and listen to all the, actually dissect the, dissect the body. I'll just read it from the books. I'll go to Wikipedia. It has all the information there. Yeah. Does it not? Mm-hmm. Well, maybe it doesn't, but it, it might have. You get a textbook. I'll read the whole textbook. I'm good to go. Yeah, no, you're not. Yeah. Because you're, when you're on your own, who knows how you're understanding it. When you teach Torah publicly, there's the benefit, of course, of the vocal inflection, of course, uh, but the environment is, is a dynamic environment where Torah is transmitted accurately. We don't have that. We're in deep danger. Uh, there's actually a verse in the Torah, a verse in Deuteronomy, when it's talking about uh, manna, the mun. And it says that the lesson of the mun is that Tilo al halechem levado adam. Not on bread alone does man sustain himself. Rather, they also need the word of God. What it's telling us, the deep lesson over there is that food is a lesson for us to the other kind of food, to the, to the spiritual nourishment, that we, the word of God, the spiritual nourishment that we need just as much, if not more, than a physical nourishment. But unfortunately, we tend to ignore Torah is great for it gives us life, says, declares the Mishnah in, in Perti Avos. It's, it's life-giving, like bread, like water, and like the, 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 the existence that we have in this world. So what would happen if we, don't, if we lost our appetite? What would happen to the world? Who would live? Who would die? No, you don't feel hunger. You don't feel, imagine we didn't feel hunger. Well, you could still eat, but there's no hunger. You know the way it is? You know, imagine you know, you're at the end of a meal and you're stuffed and you don't want to eat anymore. Yeah. Like suddenly the, 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 the steak loses its appeal. You're like, oh, right? Mm-hmm. Imagine if we were all like that. We felt like that all the time. Okay. What would happen? We probably wouldn't live. Only probably the close. people that really cared that they continue existing... Only the people that valued life would live. Everyone else would just die. And that's really the way we are. You know, 
we, we have come to Torah, we come to mitzvahs, and they seem, they, they don't have their appeal. It's not like we're at the end of the meal, so to speak. You know, it's not as exciting. Yeah, maybe some mitzvahs are. But most of them are, are hard, are challenging. We, we look at them and we're like, I'm full. I went to Hebrew school. I read my parsha. I did my bar mitzvah. I'm done. I, I finished the meal. And unfortunately, what happens to us then? We don't have any appetite for it. But we still have to eat because we realize that this is what's giving us life. When we look at, at Torah, like Torah, think of Torah as, as the IV uh, of someone we just had in our family, um, our aunt, my brother and I, uh, we have an aunt, a remarkable woman who uh, suffered from MS for many, many years. Uh, and she passed away uh, about a month ago. She was a really, an amazingly remarkable woman who suffered tremendously and never once complained, never once. And I lived by her house for a half a year and she was incapacitated more and more each day. Never once complained. And it's unbelievable. It's just unbelievable. Someone who could go through so much tremendous pain and vibrancy and excitement and joy and always wanting to know how everyone else is doing and always caring about someone else. Side note. But either way, I, I, when she was really, really sick and everyone kind of knew it was, you know, it was, it was it looks like it was the end of the road for her or maybe the beginning, depends how you want to look at the world. And she didn't have an app, she wasn't eating. And that happens a lot with, with terminally ill patients. And it's very dangerous because they don't want to eat. Mouth is quiet, mouth is shut. And we, we're kind of like that as well. You know, we're, we're terminally ill spiritually. We don't want to eat. And ironically, the hungrier we get, the more revolting the food looks to us. And the onlookers, they look at us and they say, look what you're doing to yourself. You're killing yourself. The people that have the, the rational, the reasonable understanding. And they look at us, but we refuse. The logical thing is to eat when you need it. And as spiritual entities, we need it all the time. And you know, I think we could say, and I'm going to take this a different angle um, in continuation of your point, one of the reasons why we study Torah is because we need to live. And if I were to ask you, why do you eat? You would look at me like I'm funny, like I'm silly. What do you mean everyone eats? Everyone wants to live. And the only reason why that question is funny and maybe seems bizarre is because we're constructed in a way that we don't realize we're hungry. So, if I asked you, why do you eat? And you weren't hungry. It's the same question as I asked you, why do you study Torah? When you don't realize that you're actually starving for it. So do you have to starve for Torah to study Torah to become a mitzvah? Or, or, cause I, well, 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 the starving is just an analogy. Yeah, like if you don't, oh, I don't want to study Torah. Well, that's the thing. You don't want to study Torah but do, do you do you still do you still need Torah? Yeah, but exactly. But like you're saying that people that some people will study Torah because they know that they have to eat. In, in other words, well, that's the righteous, but not because they want to study. Well, that's the thing. So that what you start the developing an appetite. Yeah. That, that's what happens. Well, well, the way it's the way the Almighty constructs it is that 
as you study more, you're feeding your soul. You feed your soul more and more, and it becomes a bigger factor in your life. So you start being connected to your soul more and more. And what actually happens is, is that, like we said, the tables get turned. Once you develop an appetite, well, it's, it's, it's like an acquired taste, right? You try to drink coffee the first time, you know, as a, uh, what do they call it? I, someone who needs caffeine every day to smile. A lot of people are like that. The first time you taste the coffee, it was like, mm, what are people so obsessed about, right? But you develop a taste for it. And perhaps we could say the first time you study Torah, you're like, this seems very challenging. What's the lesson? Why is it relevant? Those are good questions. But those are questions of someone who's never, you know, you haven't acquired the taste. Once you acquire the taste, you start to like it. Once you start to like it, you start to need it. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's possible for people to, you know, you wake up in the morning and you have like a headache because you haven't had your coffee. And sometimes you go to sleep at night and you kind of have this bad feeling because you haven't studied Torah that day. And the more you become connected, the more you become connected to Torah, the more you become dependent upon it, just like your body is dependent on food and water and, in our case, coffee and sleep. So how does that need actually, in a a typical day in the life, how does it manifest itself and how do you... Well, so what's what's really nice and neat about that is that the Torah is designed, it's a, it's a diet that's designed for people who don't know they're hungry. So if we look at a Torah day and how it compares to any a day, a secular day, a mundane day, a Torah day is bookended and replete with mitzvahs. You wake up in the morning, the first thing you're supposed to do, you say moda'ani. You have a touch point with faith. The next thing you do, you wash your hands. Every time you go to the bathroom, you make a blessing. Every food you eat, you make a blessing. You pray in the morning, you pray in the afternoon, pray at night. You're supposed to study Torah and do mitzvahs and where tzitzis and see the mezuzah and touch the mezuzah and where you're tefillin. Your whole day is replete with mitzvahs because the Almighty realizes that we're hungry and he realizes that he created us in a way we don't know we're hungry. But he loves us and wants to feed us. So what do you do when you have the patient who refuses to eat, but you love them and you care for them? What do you do? You feed them anyhow. So the, the benefit, like you said, uh, the benefit of, of, of the Torah's, um, um, uh, the Torah's uh, uh, requirements is that it subverts our inane disregard for the nourishment that we need. It is a work, is a, you know, it is a workaround against our non-recognition of our own hunger. So, um, like I said, every mitzvah is like that, and, and the one mitzvah more than all of them, that's Torah study, because Torah study brings you everything. It's the gateway to all the mitzvahs. Does that make sense, Jay? So it's, it's a good, one good deed after the next? Well, not just one, one deed. You look, you look at a Torah day, and... Uh, there's a hundred blessings we're supposed to do every day. Now, what does that mean? It's a hundred little snacks that we have. And that's just blessings. And you say the Shema twice, once in the morning, once at night. That's a, that's a real meal. That's not a snack. That's a meal. <laughs> you know, and then and you're supposed to study. For Study during day and night. Right? Where do you study when you say you study? 
I didn't a Torah study, whatever so it may be. Saying the Shema is saying the Shema is, is the bare minimum, right? Because that's that's Torah study. Okay. So you open your chumash and you read something. That that's that's saying? Torah study. You, you you study Talmud. That's study. You study Musar. That's study. You know, you read you, like I said, you read the chumash. You whatever whatever it may be. There's the 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 Torah is endless, right? It's, it's infinite. There's, there's enough Torah out there. You go to any Jewish library and try to stand the bookshelves. find a definition or something. It doesn't really have to be the whole Like, like if I'm going to Google and I'm going to find a definition that is in the Torah, and that's part of Oh, yeah. That's part, that's, that's part of trying to understand yeah. things. You know, there, there's a great episode in the Talmud, Rabbi Tiva. He traveled to Africa to find a definition of a word. Oh, and there's a few such episodes uh, because he cared about every letter of the Torah. Every letter of the Torah in his mind really came from God and thus was of infinite importance. So if we don't know what one word means, we have to go make a, make a, make a pilgrimage to the other end of the world to find out what the word means. Well, now we have Google. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, but i got to pull my phone out of my pocket. Oh, what a hassle. Ah, oh, the bookshelf is so far away. Yeah, so, so that, that's what's really neat. When you learn a little bit about the, the anatomy of the soul, if you will, or the, 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 the breakdown, the physiology of the soul and what it needs and how it's structured and how it operates, and then you look at what the Torah devised for us, a, a plan, like, like a dietitian or a nutritionist has a plan for you. Okay, I want you to eat this in the morning, and then and you're like, oh, man, how much beans can I have, right? <laughs> right? But, this, but you're, just, you're following a regiment. Because you have a goal that you want to get. The Torah is giving us a regiment. Yeah. The regiment is just, you know, you follow the regiment and your soul is tended to. And your hunger that you may not even know that you have is quenched. So just keeping God in your thoughts. That's an amazing mitzvah. Is, if you do that all the time, that's a mitzvah. Is, that is a constant mitzvah? The, the six constant mitzvahs? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah they're not bound by a certain that? time. Yeah. But but this kind of I think I think hopefully it opens up the door or opens up the avenues of understanding not just to the mitzvah of Torah study but to all the mitzvahs you know in general mm-hmm. you know uh, uh, a mitzvah suddenly becomes something much more tangible much more real much more like when you have supper right you, you think about what you're going to eat like it, you see it and like you consume it and you digest it and like it's real a mitzvah is something that kind of floating out because that's how we view everything that's spiritual. But when we have the recognition and appreciation that, that the soul too has needs like the body and the soul's needs are not filled with food, at least not of the physical variety, but only of the spiritual variety, for man needs more than bread alone, he needs the word of God as the verse says in Deuteronomy then we have a greater appreciation of mitzvahs in general. Could you define mitzvah in the context in which you're using it? Yeah, mitzvah is instruction or commandment. Uh, it's any one of the activities that the Torah encourages us to do, encourage or commands us to do, uh, or the activities that, that the Torah commands us to refrain from doing. So any one of that that would be uh, that would be a mitzvah. But in our analogy, we would say that the Almighty is this master dietitian nutritionist who wants us to really be healthy and well, and every food that he encourages us to eat all the time or at certain specific times are foods that we are mitzvahs that we need to do uh, conversely he says avoid this avoid that 
you know, don't have too much carbs or don't have too much this or don't have too much salt or sodium or whatnot. And that were th- would be things that we would avoid. And that is the formula to, to life. So if you want a uh, book about what mitzvahs are, I would encourage you to get a copy of the book called The Concise Book of Mitzvahs, which really runs through all the hundreds of mitzvahs. And mitzvahs for dummies? Yeah. No, wait, no, it's not mitzvahs for dummies. <laughs> That's it's not mitzvahs for dummies. It's, it's mitzvahs in one sitting. If you want to just have a picture of all the mitzvahs, and kind of not means the, there's the, the way we, two ways to study, right? You can study a lot in a very short amount of time, or you can spend a lot of time on a very narrow and kind of go, go, go vertically, go deep. Every mitzvah is a whole world. Every mitzvah in itself could, could build something. I, I would say, just to give us, go back to that same, you know, that, that same motif that we started with. Uh, think about a, a stem cell, right? Mm-hmm. What's unique about stem cells is that they're cells that can be turned into any kind of cell. You know, mitzvahs are also stem cells, wherein within one mitzvah you could find meaning for every part of your life. So, like, there's the 613 mitzvahs, and then there's one. And both of those are ways to really, you know, perfect your soul. Uh, to, to re, or to really tend to yourself. Now, I'm not saying one to the exclusion of others, but one vertically. You know, you could build your spiritual world out of one mitzvah. When I'm not, uh, just to be clear, I'm not saying to do one mitzvah and to ignore the rest of the mitzvahs. Well, my mitzvah, Rabbi, is to uh, make a fence around my roof. I observe that tenaciously, and that only. Of course not. But every mitzvah contains within it, it's a stem cell. It, it has, if you probe deeply into it, it could create, you could build out of it a worldview. You could build out of a spiritual ecosystem. And uh, hopefully this gives us a great appreciation of, of mitzvahs in general and particularly about Torah study. We study Torah because we need to live. It's not optional. No one asks me why we have breakfast. We don't just do it because our dads did it. Dad did it, and that's what we were taught. And this brings us to the next point. A little bit of a continuation, but a little bit from a different angle. What happens when we get to Alamaba? What happens when we live in a world where we have body and soul, but the relationship between the two and certainly the way we feel towards the two, are in, exactly inverted from what the way they, they are today. It's an upside-down world. Or this is the upside-down world. One of the worlds is upside-down, right? Mm-hmm. We think that that world's upside-down, but they think, and they're probably right, that we're upside-down. So what happens when you go to that world? And suddenly, your body needs sustenance. But what's your body? You know, who are you really? Right? What's the dominant factor of your life? It's your soul. And what feeds it then? Your mitzvah bank. Your mitzvah bank. That's right. So we do a mitzvah. Think about it this way. You do a mitzvah here today. You don't see any tangible benefit, or maybe you could in some instances, but for the general. You know, most of the times it's it's a mitzvah for a lama ba. You know, you're, you're, you do a mitzvah with your ba. You give charity, right? We're having a big charity campaign tomorrow. Yeah. You give charity. 
You're losing money, right? You have less money than before. So why would you do it? The answer is because you actually think it's better to use money for this purpose than to keep it in your pity bank. That's, what, that's, that's obviously what you believe. Well, where do you ever see the, reap the benefits of, of that mitzvah? But that's not just what one mitzvah. You wear tefillin, right? You wear tefillin every day. Why are you doing that? You could do other things because that's a valuable thing for you to do because you realize that there's something that you benefit from it. And even, if, even though you can't really feel what that benefit is in this world. Go ahead. You can feel it. Like, yeah, maybe. I don't, I, every mitzvah that I do, I don't even think about that. The next world, I think about here, and it makes me feel so good. So I don't, I don't, I don't agree with you. Oh well, okay. So I, I said really for for the tape. I, of course you're right. Of course you 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 have, have a good feeling. And I have never thought of my piggy my piggy bank for the future. It just, well, I, I don't know why. Well, okay, well, okay, but maybe we'll encourage you to, to think about that. I'll tell you why. Mm-hmm. Oh, so I have to. Well, no, I but do, I have to think about, it's know? a good idea to have a recognition of that. I'll, I'll tell you why. Because you, it means you're saying to me, Ma, you're saying like this. Well, it's better if I don't think about it, right? It's I'm doing it altruistically. I'm not thinking about reward. I don't want reward. But I don't. Yeah, that's why that. Because I give from from my heart, not my my mind thinking. Okay, I want to give so. So then, therefore, I'm gonna have more mitzvahs in there. Yeah, I don't, I don't do it. Okay, well, let, let's paint the picture here. Okay. You let me know what you think afterwards. Okay. okay. So, we get to Lamaba, and we're a human, but we're it's actually the opposite of the way the human is currently constructed. Soul is dominant. Soul is in the driver's seat, and body is just there. You don't even need to take care of it, and it's. It's, it's not at all a factor in your perspective. But Olam Abba is a world of consumption. How do you feed your, let's do, uh, you know, your quotation marks, your body, but which is really your soul then, right? There's no, what's the vegetation? Like, how do you sustain yourself then? The answer is you cannot sustain yourself then unless you prepare now. The Talmud says in a book of Avodah like this. This is a very deep insight. And it's one of those insights that you, the more you think about it, the more it makes sense and the more wonderful it is. This world, well, it's like this. I'll tell you what it says. Well, then we'll, we'll say what it impl- implies. He who toils before Shabbos eats on Shabbos. He who does not toil before Shabbos, what will they eat on Shabbos? Which sounds like a nice little saying, right? If you prepare food before Shabbos, you'll have to eat on Shabbos. If not, then what are you going to eat? What it's really telling us is like this, that this, there's this demarcation line where Friday turns into Shabbos. And in the Jewish household, Friday is a hectic day because it's all about preparing food and getting ready and showering and shaving and getting on your Shabbos for Shabbos. Shabbos comes in, and suddenly whatever you did, you have... Whatever you didn't do, it's too late to do it now. And if you don't prepare food for Shabbos, you don't have any. Because you know why? You can't prepare it on Shabbos. This world, it's a hectic world. But why is it hectic? Because it's Friday. We're preparing food. For when? For Shabbos. For Lama So the reward, the real reward that we have for the mitzvah is not something which is external to the mitzvah. It's not like, oh, you did a good job on your test. 
Here's a lollipop. The reward for making dinner is dinner. Right? You make dinner, you get to eat dinner. The reward from the mitzvah is the mitzvah. But the mitzvah is the food, the consumable, what you have in the Lamba. So when we are doing mitzvahs in this world, and of course, the greatest mitzvah of all, Torah study, we do that over here, we're like preparing our feast for the world right? when we can no longer make any more food. We can no longer prepare anymore. And that is indeed the reward. because, And in that world, which is the eternal world, we have the status that we achieved, that we created, that we formed with our deeds, with our actions over here. Okay, so the souls that are in the Hanabon and haven't prepared well, what happens to them? They don't have what to eat. Okay. What happens it. when you don't have to yeah. eat? Well, you get hungry, I guess. You suffer. Yeah. But even if you do have to eat, right? This, there, the, there's so eating and then there's eating, right? And you get sent back to try and well, let's not go there, right? But, uh, you know, let's say you, there's two kinds of people that are eating, right? You have the guy who's, you know, eating on a $2 a day, right? Oh, you have some old crusty bread and every day of your life. Can you imagine how terrible it is? Mm-hmm. Or you could be eating five, five course or five star, everything Michelin rated, top of the line, the Michelin rated. <laughs> Is it Michelin? What is it? Michelin? Yeah, that's right. well, don't, don't, don't they rate also restaurants? Yeah. Um, they do that? or yeah, Michelin rate it. Thank you. I don't think a lot, of, uh, a lot of those restaurants are kosher. <laughs> but when we do mitzvahs in this world, it's as if we're taking the world's greatest cookbook and we're making all these varieties of foods for Shabbos. And then our Shabbos is a different Shabbos. What happens when you're, when you're Shabbos and you're rushed and you're, you're in the hospital, God forbid, before you get home before Shabbos? What do you have for supper, right? You have a, some old pitas from the freezer and a, and a can of uh, lukewarm Coca-Cola, right? Sounds yummy. <laughs> Sounds pretty good, I guess, right? And that's, I guess that's not so bad. Uh, but wouldn't it be much better, much more delightful to have something really astonishing, really fantastic, really earth-shattering, really wonderful. So, what? what are we talking about? Uh, so, so it's, it's like this. So food for our soul, we can think of it as our soul needs sustenance, right? Mm-hmm. Or we can think of it as there's going to come a time when we'll actually realize that our soul is all that we've got and that's all that matters and it needs sustenance. But the only time that we have, the only opportunities that we have to create that sustenance for the soul is right here, right now, with mitzvahs. We do it, we have what? The positive and the negative. We do it, we have what to eat. If we don't, what are we going to eat? And it's interesting, because you look at Friday and Shabbos, there's a lot that, you know, the Talmud makes a few connections, there's a lot of different connections between Friday and Shabbos and this world and the next world. And it's kind of interesting to kind of map it out, but this world is a world of work. We're here toiling. And you see a Friday afternoon in a Jewish household, and you see, like, this is where these people live. They're working all the time. Take a snapshot of what it's like. They're cleaning, they're scrubbing. What kind of life is that? They're just cleaning and scrubbing. Well, no, it's cleaning for Friday, for Friday night, for Shabbat. 
And indeed, you look at a Jew's life, and they're always working, you're always throwing from one mitzvah to another mitzvah to another mitzvah to another mitzvah. When are you actually going to sit down and enjoy yourself? You will, but you're preparing just towards something bigger. And your mitzvahs that you're doing now is indeed something that you will be able to enjoy in but a little bit short, little, little, little uh, short while. And that too, I think we shouldn't feel like we do a mitzvah and it's done, right? You know, imagine you made food on Friday, right? You made food on Friday, and then uh, why don't I get to eat it? So maybe like your mantra, you can taste a little bit of it. It feels good. You know, taste a little bit before Shabbos. But, you know, the kids start coming out. You know, we have my, this happens in my family. I don't, maybe it doesn't happen in anyone else's family. So my wife's making all the delicious food for Shabbos. And the kids start thinking, you know, you can't grab it. Oh, we have guests coming, right? What are we going to do? You can't eat all the food now. Because now is not the time for eating it. Maybe you can taste a little bit. Get a little of the wafting aroma of the food. But really what you're doing is preparing for Lama Ba. And in the Lama Ba, you'll come to think of it. And you know what? If you don't prepare, it'll be unfortunate because you might be the only guy out there that has, you know, you're pulling out those proverbial pitas and crackers. <laughs> but either way, we should, we should feel, we should have a, a renewed appreciation uh, of of some of of like a tangible and, and real perception of what it is that we're doing when we study Torah and doing mitzvahs this Um Two things. One is, can I get married? Well, I'm not gonna put myself. Can, when somebody passes away, yes, and somebody else is doing a mitzvah, but is doing a mitzvah because of what that person yes. did. So does that person, even though he absolutely does he keep on accumulating the points through the other person's mitzvah? Yes, and that's, that's one of the wonderful things about, about, about the uh, compound interest, okay. which, uh, who was it that said it's uh, one of the eighth wonders of the world or whatever? It was Einstein? Yeah, it was Einstein. Einstein said, well, he said it was the eighth wonder of the world. I don't know what he said, something like that. Like, it's just, he has a quote or two. Like, if you take one penny and you just double it every day, that's worth more than a million dollars within a month. Oh, it's only one penny. I'm just doubling it, right? The answer is, is that, well, that's just the way, that's just the, the miracle of compound interest. Right? When you do mitzvahs and you create a better world, your interest is compounding. So you, you have a child and you encourage that child to live a, a, a mitzvah-oriented life. That accrues to you. Or I'll give it a, a, another little spin. You teach Torah to your fellow man, and they do mitzvahs on their own. What if you're, you're out of the picture? You move back to the United States, or you move to a different country, they move to a different country. But the, you got them started, you kick-started them, that accrues back to you as well. And I'll take it even further, just because of the uh, upcoming campaign. <laughs> You support the teaching of Torah in the outskirts of town. And there's somebody in this planet, and is in this country, 45 miles away, that's inspired by the organization to whom you gave a donation. You never met that guy. But their Torah study, their continued engrossment in 
that world goes back to you because you contributed to that. So it's possible for it to just go on and on. So someone has 10 kids and they have 10 kids and they have 10 kids. There's a thousand people in the world that are doing mitzvahs and all that comes back to you because of those initial efforts. And you say, oh, my kids are such a hassle. <gasps> Rabbi, you, you have five kids. How many more do you need? Yeah, exactly. It, and it just goes on and on and on. How many kids do you really need? Really, really. When are you going to stop? Someone asked me that question recently. And what's your answer? <laughs> no, well, he didn't ask it. He didn't ask that. He asked it in a very nice way. You know, someone asked my brother that question. Yeah. And he said, "When well, someone asked him, when, when are you going to stop having children?" So he said, "When I hit six million." <laughs> what? Six, six million. million. Six million. That's what he said. And when is that coming? It is, isn't it? I think we're there. No, he said when he hit six million. He which, by the way, it's not so crazy because if you actually have seven children and those seven children have seven children and those seven children have seven children, after eight generations, you're almost at six million people. When you're parents go back in your family, how many millions do you have? That's true. I'm saying, but, that, but that's, and that's not, seven, eight generations is not that long. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's 220, 30 years. It's, I mean, your parents already said they're almost at 40. Well, uh, grandkids. Oh yeah, it's pretty, pretty incredible. Well, Almost. it's yeah, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty wonderful. It's pretty remarkable. But it's not amazing. Uh, but uh, I'm saying like yeah, so, you, so you're right. Thank so you, you study Torah, and I, you know, that's why I say, and I tell, I encourage us to everyone here to do. You should set aside some money. And allot it towards donating a shas, a Talmud, a set of Talmud. To a place where it will, it will be studied, and with the only, uh, the only condition that they write that this is to be studied in the merit of the soul of you. You do that, and then, you know, for I guess however long the shas can last for the next thirty years, there's people studying it every day, and that's a merit that accrues to your soul, and that's the best thing to do with you. I'm not saying to not leave it for your kids or whatever, or for. Right? But I'm saying that's something that you should do because that is an active step that you could do towards improving your lot even once you're ready. It's ready Shabbat for you, but it's still not Shabbat for everyone else. They could maybe send you food through this little, little pipeline. That's the idea. And I think that when we have this understanding, when we have this recognition of the, of the impact of our mitzvahs and how valuable they are for us. And we're not just doing favors to our parents and, oh, I promised my mother I'll do that, right? It's, it's for us. It's for our life. It's for our continued existence. And it's for all of eternity. It really, you know, it really makes sense to us, you know, why we're so obsessed with this. Like, why we, throughout our history, and why the Torah, as it's designed, uh, is so, you know, is, is so forceful, so... Uh, demanding that we not leave it because it's so valuable for us, and uh, hopefully with this this perspective, we'll continue uh, in educating us and encouraging us to integrate as much Torah study and mitzvahs into our lives, and uh, look forward to continue this uh, next week. Thank you. Thank you. I won't be here next week. I'm going to Israel. <laughs>